Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hello, my friends. My name is Thomas Frank, and you are listening to the College Info Geek Podcast, a show dedicated to making you a more effective student. And this week, we're actually wrapping up my little mini-series on how I create videos every week. So last week, we talked about my research project, uh, process, how I actually find topics to talk about, and then the process of setting up gear to film, actually filming that footage. And uh, now this week, we're going to wrap that up by going through the editing process and what it takes to actually get things to a workable state, uh, finished state, and then export it up to YouTube. So, and you know what, actually, now that I think about that, I didn't plan this in advance, but this is perfect preparation because I'm actually giving a talk on how I do this whole thing um, at a co-working facility in Des Moines, around about where I live in a couple of weeks now. So that'll be fun. And then the week after I do that, I'm headed off to Japan. So I've got lots of stuff going on. And um, hopefully I'll be able to sort of upgrade the productivity this week so I can get it all done. But right now I'm going to walk you through that editing stuff. So like I said, last week we went through the filming process research and we ended up with the footage on the camera card. So the first thing I do is just plug my camera into the computer and uh, transfer the footage over to my uh, folder. So I've got everything up on a two terabyte hard drive right now. And so far it is holding everything. Now, Hopefully in the future, I will be able to keep upgrading storage um, like linearly with the amount of footage I create right now. It doesn't create too much. Um, I'm thinking in a few years, I may be upgrading to 4K video. Just the way things are going, it's seeming like it's going to go that way eventually. And I'll probably have to run a lot more hard drives to to sort of keep everything backed up. But for now, two terabytes is enough. Uh, I've got a CIG videos folder and then I'll just create a new folder for each new video where I will put the uh, the footage from the camera card and also I will take the audio that I recorded over on Adobe Audition and uh, I'll do two things with that. So for one, I'll create a, just, a, just a saved file called Audio Raw and that's just the raw audio feed from the microphone with absolutely no effects on it and I save that just in case I screw up the effects somehow, um, which hasn't really ever happened before. Uh, but I want to be sure that I have the actual raw audio just in case I need it. And then I apply a effect suite that I've had I've had cooked up for quite a while now. It's just like a vocal enhancer with some equalizers, some amplification, noise reduction, a few effects. Um, I apply that and then I save a new file just called audio. So I end up with just the footage, audio, and the next thing I do is open up Adobe Premiere Pro and I'll create a new project. It's a 1080p sequence, and then I'll t- I'll just drag in all those assets. So drag in the audio, drag in the actual footage, and then I have an old project called Defaults. So when I started creating videos, I didn't have this project, and I would have to recreate all my assets from scratch every single time. Like if I had, uh, you, you probably noticed those um, little tips that go across the screen at the bottom when I say something important. I would have to recreate those every single time and like find the the gradient graphic to put in there, and um, I learned a little while back that you can actually import 
uh, one premiere project into another project, which is really, really convenient. So once I learned I could do that, at first I was just importing some of the old videos into new projects and just like scrolling through their folders, trying to find things. Now I just uh, have a defaults project. So I've got everything that I typically use in a video in there. There are um, typically used graphics, like the dark shadow borders that go around B-roll and like um, screenshots and pictures and things like that to give it a bit better look. There are stock sound effects that I use often. Um, There are certain types of animations. So I actually keep some old footage in a sequence just because it has some animations over it and I can actually copy and paste those in. And I've also got old footage because I have color settings on that old footage, which I can simply copy over to the new videos because actually the, the uh, color that I get from my camera is okay, but it's not exactly what I want. So to get the, the rich black tones and the, the more vibrant colors that you see in the videos, it actually requires a bit of color uh, correction in Premiere. Now, I don't mess around too much with like Adobe Speed Grade or anything really, really crazy for color uh, correction, but just having that preset color correction suite that I already built in the past really improves the output. So... Um, this is the point in the process that I like to call prelim edits, like preliminary edits. So I've got my project, I've got all my stuff uh, imported in, I've color corrected my footage, and the first thing to do with prelim edits is to sync up the audio with the actual video, because the audio that comes with the camera is just absolutely terrible, especially in a big room like this. Um, I've got stuff on the walls, but even still, there's some echo, and uh, even with this mic, there's a bit of echo, but with the camera, there's a lot of echo, and it sounds very tinny and just... Not that good. So the only use for the on-camera audio is so I can see the waveform and match it up with the waveform from my actual microphone. So I'll do that. Um, I'll make sure they're all matched up nicely and then actually delete the camera audio and link the video footage to the microphone audio. So now it's as if it's just one piece of footage. If I move one, the other moves with it. Uh, I don't have to worry too much about it. And from there, I will do the first uh, the first path, pass through of chopping up the footage. So this is just cutting out all the bad takes, all the times I screwed something up, and getting a usable uh, set of chunks, just kind of like squeezed together. So like I said before in the past episode, I've actually ended up with like half hour, 40 minute recordings of a video that's supposed to be like five to 10 minutes before. So that first pass through is just to get rid of all the gunk and get it down to something usable. And then I'll do a second pass through, which is just like the fine tuning. So I want to make sure like all the transitions from one sentence to another are snappy. And sometimes like if the lighting screwed up and changed or maybe like the camera overheated, which happens with my dumb camera and I had to actually like turn it back on and it moved, then I have to sometimes zoom my zoom the the frame in. So it kind of like hides the fact that that happened and uh, I'll go through. That's like the second pass through. Now, what I end up with after that second pass through is something close to what you'd see any other normal vlogger on YouTube put out if they don't use B-roll. Just kind of like the simple talking head, quick transitions, snappy uh, jump cuts is what they're called. And that would be usable if I didn't really want to put extra footage in there, extra graphics and and titles and stuff. Um, So that's the end of the prelim edits Uh, phase of the process. So after prelim edits are done, I create what's called B-roll. 
And B-roll is just a film industry term, like a video term. And it's a term for anything that isn't the actual track of uh, what you're, what you were filming in the first place. In my case, me talking. Um, if you were, if you were filming video of like a conference or something, you know, and that was your main thing, then that would be the, uh, the main track. Or if you were doing an interview, then that would be the main track. And B-roll is anything that goes on top of it to make it a little more interesting to watch. And in my opinion, this is necessary because you know, I, there are certain YouTubers I can watch who have no B-roll and it's, it's cool. I can watch them for a while, but for the most part, um, if people are just kind of talking to a camera with nothing else, I would rather listen to it. Like I, I, like while I go for a run or cook dinner or something like that's why I love podcasting so much. So for me personally, and I don't want to like put this out on somebody else and, you know, say that, other, you know, other people who make videos are doing it wrong. But personally, my style is to make the video sort of justified for its medium. Um, and that for me is putting lots of B-roll and lots of examples of what I'm talking about or references and jokes and titles and things like that. Um, and you know, my friend Tyler actually kind of validated it for me because he said, uh, the reason I watch your videos is because it's almost like a morphine drip. Like every 15 seconds or so, something's going to pop up and I don't know what it's going to be. So it keeps me engaged. Um, so that's what I end up spending most of my time in the editing bay doing creating B-roll and actually getting it onto the timeline, um, above the actual track. This is fun, but it takes a long time. Prelim edits can take a while, but B-roll probably takes the most time. So the first thing that I'll do to make this is I'll watch the video after the prelim edits are done and on a piece of notebook paper, the same notebook that I write all my to-do lists down in, I will just create a B-roll sheet. And it's just uh, three columns. It's just uh, the the column for whatever I'm going to make. And then there are two columns for check marks. So the one for the latest video, the one on testing anxiety, I've got like Snorlax, Crunk, Chicken Joe. They were both in the the opening joke. Um, the test anxiety title that comes up. And then there's the, the quote from Edward R. Murrow, the broadcaster that I quoted in the video. And then like the three fears. So I just go down the list. And um, as I watch, you know, I'll think of things that would be good for B-roll. And actually, I don't really think of a whole lot of the B-roll when I'm scripting. Sometimes I do, but for the most part, I'll script based on just what I want to say, and then I'll let the ideas flow while I'm editing for what I want to add in. Like, if you watch the the recent video, like the skeletons joke, obviously that was pre-planned, but... Um, like when I used the the painting, the scream behind the three fears, that was totally um, kind of improvisational when I was editing. So I get that down. And then the two checkmark columns, one is for Photoshop or wherever it needs to be made outside of Premiere. And then the other one is for actually in Premiere. So I've got the list of B-roll. All my checkmark or checkbox columns are empty. And the next thing I do is actually start creating things in Photoshop. So most B-roll items are made in Photoshop, though I am moving more and more into After Effects for animations, which is really cool. It's really tough. Um, It's the most confusing piece of Adobe software that I've worked with yet. But now that I'm sort of learning it and grokking it, it's making much more sense. And I'm just sort of realizing that it's ridiculously powerful. I can do a lot of stuff. Um, But mainly the stuff is made in Photoshop. And the way that I do that, which is not the way I started doing this is I will create just a 1080p um, like 1920 by 1080 document in Photoshop and then bring in everything that I want to put in the video. Every screenshot from the Internet, every picture I find, if I take pictures, I'll throw it all in there. Um, sometimes like certain types of styled titles and things will go in there as well. And I'll just have this 
jumbled document that's just a mess. All these pictures are up there. But the cool thing is that Photoshop has a built-in function that will export every layer to its own PNG file, and it will actually trim it. This is really convenient because when I started making videos, I didn't know about it, and I was cropping every single layer manually, saving them manually, and it would take forever. Um, Now, I upgraded from that to learning that you can actually import Photoshop documents into Premiere, which is cool, and it'll actually give you all the layers. Only problem with that is every single layer is 1920 by 1080 pixels. So say I have like a little circle with somebody's face in it just somewhere on, you know, a layer. Well, I can't like I can't scale that and animate it and expect it to be like from the center of the picture and then come out from there because Premiere sees it as a 1080p layer. So it'll actually zoom from the transparent middle of that layer. So that's kind of out. But now that I found the script, no problem. It'll create a folder full of images perfectly cropped and trimmed and ready to be imported, and it saves me a ton of time. And now that I have this new computer, it does it really, really quickly, even if there are dozens of layers, which even uh, makes it even faster. So that's cool. So yeah, I've got stuff in Photoshop. Um, I'll create that folder of images, and then the next thing I'll do is start doing After Effects animations. So these are really complicated. But right now, this is where I'm putting all the effort to push myself and learn more when it comes to video. I I know a good amount about shooting so far. I know a good amount about audio and Photoshop and Premiere. And right now, I am increasing my ability to make animated things in, in After Effects. And I'm learning that After Effects is much more flexible for doing certain things. Um... I was actually animating a lot of things in Premiere, which you can do. You can use keyframes just like you can in After Effects, but it just limits your options a lot when you're using Premiere. With After Effects, it's almost as if you have like an Illustrator or Photoshop style canvas. Um, You can drag things off of it and you can see exactly where they are. You can use what are called masks, where on a certain layer you can draw a box and the things in that layer will only show up in the box or outside of the box, which gives you a lot of flexibility. So if I want, um, say I have like one very small layer and then I have another layer behind it and I want that layer to only like come out of the right side of the top layer. Well, I can use a mask to make sure everything else is invisible on that layer. And Premiere, you just can't do that. So you just have a lot more options with After Effects. And as a result, I'm getting to create some really cool compositions And uh, most of those are being done for like quotes from famous authors or books that I find. I find that's a really nice format. And the inspiration for that came from watching Crash Course videos. So I think I mentioned Crash Course in the last podcast. If you don't listen to Crash Course or watch Crash Course, you should. They're one of my favorite channels on YouTube and they do some amazing After Effects stuff in their videos. So I watch Crash Course to learn about history and chemistry and all sorts of cool stuff like that. But I also watch them to learn and get inspired um, when in the realm of video stuff because they just the stuff they do blows my mind and it's amazing. And I want to be, you know, I want to be at that level of quality someday. So that's who I learned from. So let's see here. Let's go down my little list here. Um, we've got After Effects things. Oh, some in some videos I do screencasts. So you'll actually see like my mouse moving and me doing something in some piece of software. I actually use a program called Open Broadcaster to do that. And Open Broadcaster, if for those of you who are like video game nerds, you probably know this is a pro- this is a, a program that's used mainly for streaming video games to Twitch. And 
what I found is that it creates really small and like smooth screencasts uh, of any program. You can set it to watch a window. You can set it to watch your entire monitor and uh, or just one program like Chrome or Excel or whatever it may be. And it performs just as well as it would for a video game. And you can save the footage straight to an MP4 file, uh, which I do. And then I'll throw it right into Premiere and make great screencasts. So and it's free, which is nice because most people recommend, I think, uh, ScreenFlow for the Mac and ScreenFlow is like $100. And then for Windows, I really don't even know what's out there that's quality anymore. There was this really, really old program people keep recommending, but I didn't find it to be that good. So Open Broadcaster is my recommended program for doing that. So I've got all the images imported into Premiere. I've got my After Effects compositions done. And for After Effects, um, there's a thing called Dynamic Link. So Premiere, which is the editing, the video editing program, and After Effects, which is the uh, animation and effects program, they can kind of talk to each other and you can drag compositions from one to the other and vice versa. So I'll drag my After Effects compositions into Premiere, or I'll just straight up replace parts of the footage with After Effects comps, and that allows me to preview the footage uh, right in the middle of my video. So I can sit there and watch it as if the video was done with the animations in there. On my old computer, this was uh, not that fun, (laughs) because my old computer is about four years old. And I use a lot of heavy effects on my quote animations. So it would play the video and preview and just fine going along. And the moment it would hit that After Effects composition, I'd get about five seconds of preview. And then it would just chug along and stutter and, and freeze. Um, and then I'd have to drag the the timeline point, uh, marker over to the next piece of non After Effects footage to keep previewing. That wasn't that fun. So that was what actually spurred my decision to actually buy the new computer, which I had been planning to get. And uh, it actually spurred me on to spend a bit more than I had planned on it because I figured out that After Effects stuff actually takes more resources than most high-end video games. Uh, You can build a system that'll run any game you throw at it for maybe 1200 bucks, maybe even less than that if you overclock. Um, But I ended up spending a little over 2k because I wanted to make something that could actually preview After Effects compositions as well as it possibly could. Now, like Pixar animators and actual computer animation people, they use an entirely different class of graphics card to work with these kind of programs. Um, For the NVIDIA line of graphics cards, they actually have a group called the Quadros. And the most expensive Quadro that I've seen on Newegg is like $4,000. I was not going to buy that, so I got one of their just standard consumer gaming cards, but um, that paired with the amount of RAM I got and the good processor with more than four cores makes it so that I can preview my After Effects compositions pretty well. It doesn't run them in real time, but it runs them well enough that I can know exactly where the audio is going to sync up and I don't have to worry about it completely freezing, so that's nice. And uh, so, yeah, I'll get that all done. Um, I'll sync sound effects up. So when you hear like the pops or the whooshes or things like that, I have to drag those in and make sure that they sync up with transitions and all that kind of cool stuff. Um, One thing I will do a lot in Premiere is what's called nesting. So I discovered that instead of having all of your clips and footage and layers on one specific timeline where you have to make edits to every single individual piece of media that you're working with, you can actually group um, things on different layers and different clips into other sequences. And this is called nesting. 
So this is really, really convenient because it allows you to make changes and animations and uh, effects to everything within a sequence that's embedded into your main sequence. And yes, this is Inception. So as an example, if you've seen my video on Habit RPG, you'll know that there's a... Uh, there's a segment in the beginning of the video where I use a Game Boy and I use Pokemon as an analogy to talk about the app. And the, the Game Boy comes up from the bottom of the screen and you can see behind it there's the Pokemon footage and it looks like a real Game Boy. Well, actually that Pokemon footage is a different layer because that's just a video file and then the Game Boy itself is a graphic. Now I didn't know about nesting at the time so I had to spend probably an hour animating frame by frame to make sure that both the Game Boy and the video file came up from the bottom of the screen at the exact same rate of speed. This took forever and it was a huge pain in the butt. And uh, there were several other parts of that video where I tried to do the exact same thing. There were some like little things covering specific sections of the screen that I wanted to move perfectly with the background and it took forever to animate. With nesting, you can nest the clips, uh, they create a new sequence, and then you can just animate that sequence and you're done in like five seconds. So that's one of those things that has just saved me a ton of time and I'm really glad I learned it. And speaking of learning, um, one of the final things I wanted to talk about in the editing portion is what I call just-in-time learning. So this is basically how I've done all of my editing education, how I've done mostly all of my video education, to be honest. Um, so just-in-time learning is a form of learning where you learn just in time for you needing that knowledge. Uh, the opposite of it is basically any sort of curriculum classroom learning, uh, going into a classroom, going through a book, and anything like that where the teacher's like, hey, you're going to learn this and it's going to be useful maybe someday. That's cool. But right now you're just going to learn it for the sake of learning it. Yay. Um, just in time is the exact opposite. Just in time learning is, hey, you need to do this thing. Oh, you don't know how to do it. OK, well, it's time for go to go learn. And that's basically how all video editing goes for me. I don't go through classes online or anything like that. I haven't had too many people teach me. Um, I had a little bit of knowledge or a little bit of instruction on Final Cut Pro back in 2012 when I did a little summer project on it. But even that was pretty just in time because I was being paid to do it. Uh, and today, now when I want to do something, if I want to um, have some certain type of animation or I want to like put some cool lighting effects on an After Effects composition, then I have to go teach myself how to do how to do it. And that means lots of Googling, lots of going to YouTube to look for tutorials or asking people who know more than me. Uh, like my friend Satchel Drakes is amazing at motion design and all sorts of cool stuff. So I'll ask him sometimes and that helps me learn things. So in the process of making a video every single week, and I think um, part of the reason that I've been able to learn so much is the commitment to putting out a video every week. The process of doing that and trying to learn new things each time, I've gotten really good at After Effects and Premiere and all these cool things just because I've had to teach myself so many different things. So now I go into the video creation process every week with the goal of learning at least one new thing. And that means even if the video doesn't do super well, it's not really a hit, it doesn't matter because in addition to the value I've provided to the people who do choose to watch it, I've also provided some value to myself because I've pushed myself to learn something new. And that I've created uh, 26 videos, I think I've done so far, not counting bonus videos, uh, 26 core College Info Geek videos. 
I've gotten to learn 26 sets of new skills through each project, and that really adds up over time. So just-in-time learning is amazing, and if you want to take advantage of it, just find a project that's challenging, that requires you to learn new things, and dive into it. You'll create things of value, you'll be able to show them off or potentially help people, and you'll also be learning in a really efficient way because doing ends up being more efficient than just reading or listening, in my case at least. So that's the editing process. Um, after that, I export the file, and I have some settings set up for that. Um, you can actually create presets for your export settings in Premiere. So, And this is one thing, uh, a common thread that you're probably seeing here. I try to do as much as I possibly can to make the editing process efficient because as somebody who's getting new ideas every week and as somebody who wants to inject new things and lots of you know graphics and b-roll and fun things into my videos they take a long time to do so any advantage i can get to shave seconds off of that process helps immensely so all the presets i can figure out how to make all the favorites folders and and shortcuts and keyboard shortcuts and stuff like that uh, i want to learn them and i want to make as uh I want to make the editing process as efficient as I can. So I do that, and then I just upload to YouTube, and from there, there's just a few extra bits to create to go along with the video. I've got to do a description, and then uh, i got to title the video. Um, there's the thumbnail. So the thumbnail is fun because what I do, and I might have talked about this in the first episode, uh, is I actually stand in front of the camera before I start actually talking through my script and make dumb faces. That way I can go get a easy to grab screenshot for the thumbnail and then I'll cut that out and paste it over just a clean shot of the backdrop. The reason I do that is because I like to put a colored overlay behind myself and I only do that because on the videos page on YouTube I like to see different colors on all the videos. It's kind of an OCD design choice thing for me. I don't really know if there's much of a return in terms of like actual viewership or you know subscribers or anything but it's just a stylized thing that I like to do and yeah, it adds a bit of work to the process but hey that's okay with me so yeah I make the thumbnail I get the description and the title um, once the video is uploaded I actually go in and add annotations and there's another feature called YouTube cards so if you've ever seen me say something like you can click the card to learn more and there's no annotation um, up in the top right corner currently as I record this there will pop out like a hey go to this blog post or hey go do this thing and you can click on it it'll slide out a little drawer with links that I've put in there I think they're pretty cool um, the only thing that YouTube has said is hey we can't guarantee that the card location where people are going to click will always be in the top right corner so don't point to it and that's uh, kind of annoying because I do like pointing to my annotations when I edit them in. So it's it's a new process to learn, but I think cards are going to eventually replace annotations or become the main form of linking to other content in videos. And the cool thing about them is they do work on mobile devices. So if somebody's watching my video on an iPhone or an iPad or smartphone, I can actually say, hey, go to this blog post in the card and they'll be able to go to it. If it's an annotation like the end cards, those don't work on mobile, so I have to make sure that everything is also linked up in the description and hope that people care enough to go down into that description and click on things. So cards are cool, I make those. Um, once the video is up, one thing that I have consciously decided to do for every video is add accurate closed captioning. So, and I do this because um, I want to make it as accessible as possible. This is another reason why I don't actually put ads on my video. I want to make it incredibly accessible for anybody. And uh, that includes people who maybe have hearing problems. But also, I have a lot of viewers who don't 
speak English as their first language. And this isn't something that I anticipated getting, um, but it's happened. And I've had people say, hey, you know, I really want to enjoy your content, but you speak a bit too fast for me or I couldn't I didn't catch what you said there and at this specific point in the video. So I actually get accurate closed captions so that anybody can read the content if they can't hear me well enough. And luckily there's a service called Rev and they do captions for a dollar a minute. And since my videos are usually five to seven minutes long, it's just like five to seven dollars to get accurate closed captions and it doesn't take me any time at all to make them. So it's a no brainer. Um, it's really not that big of a price to pay, I think, for making my content accessible. So yeah, I do that. And then uh, the only other parts are sharing it via the blog post that I write for it in the show notes. And then I also share it to Facebook, Twitter, and sometimes to Pinterest and things like that. And then it's out in the world and ready to be watched by whoever wants to watch it. So that is an overview of my creation process. We started with research and topic development and filming in the last episode. We did editing and uploading and publishing here. And the only other thing I want to go over is, um, you know, I talked a bit about creating templates and reusable assets earlier. We talked about the defaults project and folder. Uh, we talked about the favorites folder for transitions and effects, I believe. And uh, one other thing I do is I have common repositories for sound effects and graphics that I use often. So if you watched a lot of my videos, you'll know that there's this pointer finger that's used in every end card and in some other parts of the videos. Or there's a, a whoosh sound that happens anytime I have a transition or a pop sound when an element comes on the screen. I use those a lot. So I make sure to have a folder that's sort of agnostic to any one project and keep them all in there. Now, these are also in my defaults project, so I'll have access to them when I import that defaults project, but I wanna make sure it's not sort of like shoved off into some old project because then it gets hard to find. So if I make something during a video and I think, hey, this is probably something I'm gonna use often, then I'll put it in that folder. That way it's easy to find for me. So that is it, and hey, if you have um, you know the inclination to learn more about video creation, well, I've got a few resources for you. One, I've decided that eventually I'm going to create a little side project. I'm going to make a course that will take you through my video creation process. It'll be a bit more in-depth version of these two podcast episodes, and it'll be visual. Um, so it, it won't be like a complete overview of everything in video. It won't teach you like about lenses and about aperture and shutter and all that cool stuff. It's not going to be a class. It'll be more like a job shadow. So say you got the chance to come into my room and stand over my shoulder and watch me make a video. That's what it would be. So I'm thinking I'll make that as a course because I've had a lot of people asking me to do it. And it's very much a side project. I don't want it to cut into any of the uh, College Invo Geek content that I do. So it's not going to have any guaranteed release date right now. But if you're interested, there's a site, uh, a page I set up on my site, which is uh, collegeinfogeek.com slash video dash course. And there you can sign up for a different email list that I have. It's separate from the main College Info Geek list, and it's only going to be for updates on this course. So if you want to get on there and just kind of follow the progress, um, when I get things made, I will let you know. And then when the course goes up for sale, then you'll be able to buy it if you want. And otherwise, uh, some more resources you can check out. My friend Caleb Wojcik has an entire site about making great videos. That's his whole career, basically. And it's called DIY Video Guy. 
Uh, you can find it at DIYVideoGuy.com. He's got a weekly video show. He's got a weekly podcast where he interviews YouTubers and video creators and also does some solo episodes. And then uh, he's also got a course that he just launched, which is the actual in-depth uh, thing that I said I wouldn't do on lighting and filming and camera gear and audio gear and all that stuff. So if that's something that you're interested in, I think Caleb's a great teacher and that could be something to look into. There's also something called Video Copilot. Um, they have After Effects tutorials and effects tutorials. And if you want to get into the editing side of things and learn some effects, they're a great resource to learn from. There's a channel called Indie Mogul on YouTube, and they think they've actually stopped making videos, but for several years they were making great stuff. And if you want to learn more about filmmaking or uh, just techniques in general, they have amazing videos. And last but not least, there's always lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com. If you want to get uh, information or like courses, full-on video courses about basically any software you can think of and many different techniques, then they are the place to go to. They've got like probably 10 courses on Premiere and then they've got several courses on After Effects and any Adobe program you can think of. If you're into using other video editing programs like Final Cut or Vegas, they've got courses on that. Um, I've used them for several things in the past. Uh, I think I started my PHP education on them actually. And my school actually offered free subscriptions for students. So if you're a student and you don't want to pay the 25 bucks a month for it, Ask your school if they have it, and if they don't, ask them to pay for a subscription because it's amazing. It's kind of a no-brainer for a college to have um, you know, on their list of resources that students can access. So definitely check those resources out if you have uh, an inclination to learn more about video. So hey, if you want to find all these links that I talked about and other cool stuff, you can go over to the show notes, which are at CIGpodcast.com. That's the main podcast page on my site, and you can scroll down to the episode 61 link, and you'll find those links. You'll also find a link to subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you listen, and also leave a rating and review on iTunes if you like the show. That really, really helps out, so I would be super appreciative if you did that. And uh, otherwise, I will see you next week. So, hey, guys, thanks so much for listening, and stay cute. Thanks for listening to the College Info Geek Podcast. Grow your brain even more at www.collegeinfogeek.com.